Jesus says you're to pluck out your eye, your right eye, if it offends you. He doesn't mean literally pluck out your eye. You know what Jesus is saying? Get radical in dealing with your sin. Don't think it's harmless for a minute. It'll destroy you. Flee. Run away. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How can the wisdom that comes from God help in an increasingly darkened culture? What would it look like for you to completely and utterly trust Him for all things, including for the strength to live a pure and holy life? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part eight of a current series titled Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven. True biblical wisdom is marked in the life of the believer by several key characteristics, one of which is by real and true sexual purity. Purity is one of the greatest markers of a life submitted to and filled with God's wisdom. In a culture gone wild, how do you remain dependent on godly wisdom and maintain a pure heart and mind? Let's join our teacher for more now on The Word Unleashed. John Blanchard, commentator in the book of James, writes, What James chooses as the fundamental criterion of wisdom is not an outward expression, but an inner experience. He examines our hearts before he looks at our hands. He is primarily concerned with what we are and only then with what we do. Now when you look at the structure of verse 17, it's obvious that James really wants to punctuate. He intends to drive home this word pure. He wants it to stand out. Look at the words on each side of it. In English as in Greek. First. First, pure. The word first does not mean chronologically first. The word literally means chief, foremost, of first importance. And then notice then, which comes after the word pure. Then. This word means thereafter, afterwards. You see, James is going to list seven more qualities after this one. But he wants us to know that this word pure is the clearest test and the primary test to see if we're truly, genuinely spiritual people, if we're genuinely, biblically wise. James is obviously talking here about identifying the person who is wise. Verse 13, he introduces us to that. So when he says that wisdom is pure, what he's saying is this. If you want to know whether or not you're really wise, then look in your heart for purity. Because if you're really wise, you will find it characterized, your heart that is, by purity. Now what does it mean to be pure? What exactly is this virtue? The Greek word that's translated pure comes from the same root as the New Testament word for holy. Back in the Septuagint, this word pure was used primarily to describe something that was free from ceremonial defilement. In other words, it was used of purity in the sense of being free from some defect that would keep you from coming into the presence of God or of something being used in the service of God. But that's not its primary sense in the New Testament. 
When you come to the New Testament, this word pure has two primary senses. And I think both of them are implied in what James is teaching us here. Both senses of this word pure are found in one text. And I want you to turn there. And over the next few minutes, keep your finger there. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 1, Paul is in the process of defending his apostleship. And he says, you know, bear with me while I do this. And here's why he says I'm defending my, my apostleship. Not for my own namesake. But I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I, and here he uses an interesting picture. He sees himself as the one presenting the bride. He says, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I may present you as a, and here's our word, pure virgin. Now obviously Paul goes on in verse 3 to describe the fact that he's talking about philosophies here. He's talking about ideologies which would draw them away from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. But what I want you to see is how he uses this word pure. He uses it in the context of moral and sexual purity. Here is a virgin coming to her wedding, and I want to present her, you, the Corinthian church, I want to present you as a pure virgin. That is, morally and sexually free from sin. That's the first sense in which this word pure is used. It is moral or sexual purity. Richard Trench, in his book on synonyms of the New Testament, defines it this way. He says, It is predominantly employed to express freedom from fleshly impurities which defile both body and spirit. In other words, pure or purity is the exact polar opposite of, and you'll recognize this Greek word, porneia. It's a word which includes all forms of sexual sin. Any deviation from God's sexual standard. Purity is the exact opposite of that. It has no taint of anything like that in it. No pollution whatsoever. This is, of course, characteristic of God Himself, this highest level of separation from sin of any kind. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, the, the prophet says to God, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Listen, God has not one time laughed about things that are evil. God has not one time countenanced anything in His eternal mind that spots or stains His holy character. John, in 1 John chapter 1, Verse 5 says, God is light, and in Him is no darkness, no none at all. There is nothing but blazing light in the presence of God, not one slight shadow of a stain on His character. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, we read that God is pure, and He uses this word, God is pure, He's untainted by anything. When we come to faith in Christ, the Bible tells us that we are made new, that we become partakers in the divine life, 1 Peter 1. So it shouldn't surprise us, listen carefully, that since moral purity is present in God, 
that it becomes, once we come to take of his life, it becomes characteristic even of new Christians. You remember the Beatitudes that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with. The Beatitudes sort of map the journey of spiritual progress of the soul from sin to Christ. And it begins, of course, with blessed are the who? The poor in spirit. It begins with spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those who come to the end of themselves. That's where salvation begins. And then it moves on to those who mourn because of their sin. Those who are made meek and humble because they realize they have nothing to plead before God. And eventually you come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This quality of purity is accomplished by a thorough cleansing from the guilt and stain of sin on the soul at the moment of salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, a passage we'll come back to in a few moments, Paul talks about the fact that we were all of these terrible things, all of these litany of sins he lists, and he says, but you were washed. That's what happens at salvation. We're washed. In John 13, verse 10, Jesus describes it as having a bath. He says to the disciples, you're all clean because you've had a bath. Your souls have been bathed. And now all you need to do is to have your feet washed as you pick up the dirt of the world. This cleansing from the guilt and stain of sin on our souls is made possible by the death of Jesus Christ as the substitute of the believing sinner. In Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, verse 14, we read, Jesus gave Himself for us to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Why did Jesus die? Well, part of the picture of why He died was to purify us, to cleanse us. In fact, over a couple of pages in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3 says, he describes the work of Christ this way, when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the work of Christ. Christ and His sacrifice cleanses the believer from the stain and filth of his sin. And then the Holy Spirit of God begins to build true, active purity into the life. That's one of the things James means when he says, this wisdom is first pure. He means that it's free from moral and sexual defilement. But there's a second sense, and back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you find it there as well. Verse 3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity, and here it is, it's a different form of our word, and purity of devotion to Christ. What does this mean? What is this kind of purity? Well, this is purity in a slightly narrower sense. It has the idea of a wholehearted dedication to Christ. That's why the translators have supplied the word devotion. That's the idea. A pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Wholehearted commitment. This is part of what it means to be pure. 
But you know, in the end, those two senses, moral and sexual purity and wholehearted devotion to Christ, are really opposite sides of the same coin. Because if you are wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus Christ, you're going to avoid sexual sin. We're commanded everywhere to put off sexual sin, to be morally pure. In Acts 15, verse 20, as the Jerusalem council issues its edict, it says to tell the Gentiles to abstain from porneia, from, from all forms of sexual sin. Romans 13, 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in sexual promiscuity, there's the acting out of the sexual sin, or in sensuality, which has more to do with the mindset, the attitude. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, the body is not far Porneia, but for the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul writes that having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from porneia, all forms of sexual sin. So this is clearly God's command for us. And yet, in and of ourselves, we do not have the capacity to obey these commands. In the words of the proverb, Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Or I'm reminded of Augustine's famous statement that so angered Pelagius in the 5th century. In his confessions, Augustine writes, Give me the grace, O Lord, to do as you command, and command me to do what you will. O holy God, when your commands are obeyed, when I obey your commands, it is from you that we receive the power to obey them. You see, God must make us pure. But as we've learned in so many other areas, don't wait for God to zap you pure. God uses means. He does this. He accomplishes purity in our lives through the use of means. So what means does God use? You want to have a pure heart? You want to have a heart that's free from sexual sin? You want to have a heart that's free from the wavering and devotion to Christ? A pure heart? Let me give you what the Scriptures teach. I went this week through and looked at those passages that talk about this and sort of put together a little list. Here are practical ways to have a pure heart. Number one, go to Christ for salvation. This is where it begins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes to the Corinthians about this very issue of their salvation. And he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, and that word stands for the passive partner in a homosexual relationship, nor homosexuals, the, act, the active partner, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were set apart. You were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus. Purity begins at the cross. Begins when you give up your rebellion against God. You come to Him crying out to be cleansed. There's a second step. It's run from it. Run from it. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee porneia. Get away from it. Listen, do whatever you have to. Are you tempted by the internet? Then get rid of the internet. Are you tempted by television and things you watch on television? Get rid of the television. Is there a bookstore you drive past that tempts you? Then drive 40 miles a different way to work. Jesus says you're to pluck out your eye, your right eye, if it offends you. He doesn't mean literally pluck out your eye. You know what Jesus is saying? Get radical in dealing with your sin. Don't think it's harmless for a minute. It'll destroy you. Flee. Run away. Number three. Think about, dwell on what is pure. Think about what is pure. Philippians 4.8 If there's anything pure, dwell on these things. Listen, you know, let's just be straightforward here. You cannot watch four hours of television a day in which you were exposed to 20 illicit sexual relationships and expect to stay mentally and physically pure. You can't focus your mind on explicit materials and stay pure. Think about what is pure. Cut off whatever's feeding your temptation. Just cut it off. Get rid of it. Do something else. But think about what's pure. Number four, my little list here. Learn from others how to be pure. Learn from others. There's an interesting verse in Titus chapter 2, verse 5. There, the older women are told to teach the younger women how to be pure. You see, we can learn as well. Listen, if you're an older person, if you're an older man or woman, and you have learned how to deal with sexual temptation and how to defeat it, how to overcome it consistently in your life, then find a young person and teach them how. And if you're a young person and you're struggling, or if you're someone who's struggling with this issue, find somebody that can help you. Lean on a Christian brother or sister. Explain to them what you're struggling with. Listen, sin, particularly sexual sin, loves to keep a person alone. You'll find that nothing will be more helpful than finding someone who can pray with you, who can challenge you, who can hold you accountable, who can teach you how to be pure. Number five, start thinking about eternity. 1 John 3.3, 3, He who has this hope, that is the hope of Christ's return, purifies himself as he is pure. Listen, as sure as you will go to work tomorrow, or school, or wherever it is you will go tomorrow, as sure as that happens, there is a day coming, and it may be very soon, when you will stand before your Creator. Start thinking about that. Start thinking about the reality that Christ will return as He's promised. And He will change you into His image and ask Him to start that process now. Next. And this seems so simple, but it's what the Scripture teaches. Obey the truth. Obey what you know. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. You purified your souls. How? By your obedience to the truth. How much time have you spent this week in the Word of God? How much time have you spent thinking about it and thinking about how to put it into practice? Has it been as much time as you've read the newspaper or watched sports or read journals or whatever it is you do with your free time? 
Obey the truth. Next, become active in the process of sanctification. Romans 13, 13 says, put on Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. What does it mean to put on Christ? That's Paul's shorthand for the whole process of sanctification. He's saying, listen, get active in the process of sanctification. Get up off the pew and start acting and living like a Christian. And finally, find your joy in God. I read this morning Psalm 16. Verse 11 of that psalm is a great verse. Listen to it again. In your presence, God, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forever. The only way you can overcome, and the only way I can overcome, anything that draws us out away from God is to let God be our joy and satisfaction instead. I'm reminded of Augustine, great church father. He was absolutely bound by sexual sin before his conversion. He describes his life before Christ as, quote, a hissing cauldron of lust, end quote. He writes in his confessions, during all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Because it was a wonderful thing. I once feared to lose them, but it was such a sweet thing to be rid of them. How? You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. Listen, the only way to overcome whatever the idol of your heart is is to find your greater joy in God rather than in that idol. Anything else is a shell and pea game. This is the only real way to deal with the idols of the heart. This word purity ultimately brings us back to the cross of Jesus Christ because only the pure will see God Hebrews 12, 14, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And yet, what is the reality of our condition? Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, you've memorized it probably as a child. All of us have become as an unclean thing, and all our righteous deeds are as minstrel coverings. You understand, it's not our sins that Isaiah is comparing to a minstrel covering. Those are far worse he says, think for a moment about the most righteous thing you have ever done in your life. Think about that for a moment. What is the most righteous thing you think you have ever done? God says, in my sight, that act is as disgusting as the covering used during menstruation. You see, you and I are like Pigpen in the Snoopy cartoon. We walk around and everywhere we go, we carry our own cloud of filth and mud and dust and dirt and it's disgusting to God what we desperately need is to be washed to be cleansed and here's the good news God is eager to do just that I read to you earlier 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he says Paul goes through that list of sins and he says such were some of you but you were washed God will do that
if you're willing to let go of your rebellion, if you're willing to turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God will do what no human could ever do. He will wash you. And the Scripture uses the image white as snow. No matter how dark dyed your heart may be, there's hope for you at the cross. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven. Join us next time for part nine. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.